You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week five, covering Matthew chapters 11 through 13. you all are enjoying this study. Uh, One of the things that has truly been a delight to me uh, as I've been going through it is all of the artwork that our graphic designer Megan put in the workbook. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, As I look at these pictures, it reminds me that this faith that I have and this family that I'm a part of, it not only spans the continents of the globe, but it actually spans forwards and backwards in time. History is full of saints who have looked into these same chapters that we're going to be looking at this morning, and they have discovered the same truths about God's unchanging character that we are going to be looking at this evening. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his word stands the test of time. Amen? All right, so I want to do a little review with you guys this morning. If you haven't noticed, um, we are covering a lot in a short amount of time, and so... There we go. And so I want to pause and I want to remember what we have taken away so far so that we can um, connect our chapters that were in this evening, 11 to 13, back into the whole book of Matthew. So the first week, Chris gave us a look at the whole story of scripture leading up to Matthew. And she told us that God's rule and reign was being contested since the opening chapters of Genesis. And then we see that all of the Old Testament is pointing us forward to this moment in history that we are studying, where Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew 1 to 4, we looked at Jesus' birth and his early life leading uh, to his early ministry. And we saw that from these chapters, there are only two responses to, to Jesus, opposition or allegiance. You either give your life to following Jesus or you rebel against his rule. Then in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus gave us an explanation of the kingdom of heaven. And we saw um, from what Christy told us that this allegiance that we hold, it's one where our outer righteousness and our inner righteousness need to match. Our hearts must be in submission to Jesus as king. And then last week, uh, Chris took us through Matthew 8 to 10, and we saw the person and mission of Jesus, and we saw that faith is both our entrance into the kingdom of heaven and also our empowerment in the kingdom of heaven. It is through faith that we believe in Christ, and it's through faith that we follow Jesus in this mission. All right, so here we find ourselves after Jesus has performed many miracles and healings, his name is being proclaimed over all of Israel, and there's large crowds following him. And we open up our chapters with a question from John the Baptist. John has some of his disciples come to Jesus and they ask him the question, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for another? John's asking the question, are you the Messiah? Okay, now wait a second. Do you remember just a few chapters back, John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus. He was telling him, Lord, it's you that should be baptizing me, not this way. He saw the spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and he heard the father, God, call him his son. So why is John asking if Jesus is the Messiah? Well, John has heard a report about Jesus, and Something in this report uh, does not line up with what John expects the Messiah to be doing. 
And we don't really know what is causing John to, to question Jesus. We could take some guesses based on our text. Uh, maybe it's his circumstances. Remember, John, the greatest man born to woman, is in prison right now for preaching. And meanwhile, Jesus is out healing and doing miracles for other people. Maybe John thought that Jesus would come in greater judgment and he would condemn Herod and the Pharisees and take this kingdom by force. We don't know why, but John too is just a man and he needs to accept Jesus as Lord. I find it comforting that his doubt is recorded for us here in scripture because John the Baptist, who prophesied about Jesus' coming under great persecution, he still has questions. Sisters, it's okay for us to have and ask hard questions. This question is at the heart of our text this morning. Is Jesus the Messiah? And it's one that we all need to ask and answer in order to come to faith. And yet, even after we come to faith, there still may be times when our expectations of Jesus or our circumstances, they cause us to question, are you really who you say you are? I certainly have had times like this since coming to faith. Times where I've had to ask the question, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Times where I wondered, did I get this all wrong? Or maybe my circumstances made it hard to believe? Lord, are you enough? Can, can I really trust you? But what I want you to notice is what does John do with his doubt? He takes it to Jesus. He takes it to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't condemn him for asking these questions. He doesn't say, John, how could you ask me this? Haven't you seen everything I've done? How could you not know I'm the Messiah? No, he responds to him with, with gentleness and with the truth of scripture. Yes, see and hear, John, I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of these prophecies. If you find yourself in a season of doubt, take your questions to Jesus. It's okay to ask him the hard questions. He can handle them, I promise you. He is bigger than your doubt. And if your circumstances are causing you to question if Jesus really is who he says he is, then take those things to him. He delights when we come to him and we bring these questions. Read his word. Ask a sister to remind you of the truth of who he is. We need one another as we walk through life. So after John's disciples leave, Jesus turns his attention to the crowds. So there's crowds of people following after Jesus after they have seen his miracles and heard his teachings. And yet in seeing, they do not see. And in hearing, they do not hear. They're seeing things with their physical eyes, but they're not truly understanding who Jesus is and what he has actually come to do. John declares, or Jesus declares, that John is the second Elijah. Well, what is a second Elijah? So in the Old Testament, Elijah is a prophet. And the prophet's primary role is to communicate God's message to the people. Elijah prophesies during the time of the kings, and in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, if you put, flipped in your Bible to the left of Matthew, it would be the book right before it. And in this book, uh, Malachi prophesies in the very last verses, 
He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So these are the very last verses in all of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying here is that John is this Elijah figure that Malachi prophesied would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. John's message from God is the arrival of his son. And it's because he has the privilege of this announcement that Jesus calls him the greatest man born to woman. So how can the least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than he? Well, it's because something, or rather someone, greater is here. The Messiah is here. And it's through his work of redemption that we can have a part in the kingdom of heaven. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets because Jesus has come. He is God in the flesh, and he's not only here to proclaim God's message, but to actually be the word himself. Jesus is the greatest prophet, and he has come as a living revelation of the character and the truth of who God is. Jesus goes on to condemn those who are hearing but not believing in John and Jesus. And he does so with a parable. And in this parable, he compares himself to a flute player at a wedding. And this flute player is playing a happy tune, but the people refuse to join in the celebration. And then he compares John to a singer at a funeral, but the people refuse to join in to his mourning. Jesus has come, he is healing people and he's doing miracles, he's pushing back against the chaos of the world, but the people are refusing to really believe in him. John has come pointing out what people's true state of their hearts are and that they need a savior, but they are refusing to repent. Woe to you, Jesus says. Did you get a chance to look at your map for where these places were that Jesus was calling out? I know it can be kind of hard to see the dividing lines, but Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are all northern towns in Israel. And Jesus is comparing them to wicked and Gentile towns. But not just any wicked and Gentile towns. He's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon. Did you guys get a chance to look at the cross-references associated with these verses? At the terrible, wicked things that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord wiped them out? These things are rough. They are the types of stories that make us question, should we really be reading the Bible to our children? Right? It is like really R-rated stuff. So how... Could Jesus call these law-abiding Jews worse than that? Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's because Jesus is calling out the greatest sin that can be committed, and that is the sin of unbelief. The people in these towns, they've been presented with the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God and the Messiah, and they refuse to believe in him. The only way to receive mercy and forgiveness is to repent and believe. And these people are not doing that. This is meant to be a sobering warning to the crowds. 
We cannot just say amen to Jesus. We cannot just know about Jesus. We cannot even just say that we believe in Jesus because even the demons do that and they shudder. No, we must put our trust in him. These verses, they tell us of a God who will punish those who do not repent. His wrath is sure. But one of the most striking things to me as I prepared for our teaching this morning was what comes after these verses. I never noticed this progression before. After these verses that declare God's wrath come some of the most tender words out of Jesus. They're words that make us pause and consider what a merciful savior we have. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here we see Jesus, who was just saying, woe to you, unrepentant sinners. Now turn to his followers and say, come. To, to repentant sinners, Jesus offers us undeserved mercy and grace. Do you remember Chris's definition of faith? That after we see the truth of who God is and our helpless state before him, we choose to move towards him. We come under submission and we find that his good and perfect rule brings rest. It brings rest from trying to earn our salvation from following the law. It brings rest from striving against our sin on our own. Rest from trying to satisfy ourselves in places other than him. This rest isn't one where we don't do any work. We still have to work and obey, but we're no longer under the condemnation of our sin. Sisters, we need this gospel message in order to come to salvation, but we continue to need this gospel message even after we come to faith. We continue to need to come. If you heard Tom's message on Sunday, he told us that the trials of this life, they train us to run to the Father's bedside like a child in the middle of the night and entrust ourselves to him. This life of faith is one where we continue to trust in him. We don't trust what we can see with our physical eyes, but we entrust ourselves to the one who offers us perfect rest. If you're weary of your sin and your brokenness, come to him. If this world feels heavy, come to him. If you have doubts, come to him. He doesn't push away at the repentant heart of a sinner, but rather he comes towards us and he delights when we bring our burdens to him because he is the only true remedy for them. Now, in stark juxtaposition to Jesus' character, we see the Pharisees and they are continuing to look for a way to condemn Jesus. And ironically or not ironically, they call out Jesus and his disciples for working on the Sabbath. 
Last week in our text, Jesus told the Pharisees to go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Chris told us that this phrase, go and learn what it means, is one that the rabbis would have used when their followers uh, and students, they weren't getting the point of what they were saying. And what Jesus is saying here is, you've missed the point. You don't get it. The point of the Sabbath is to orient people to the Lord, to draw their eyes up to him, to trust in him for all things. And now Jesus is here and he's offering true Sabbath rest and they're refusing to believe in him. They have missed the point. Next, Jesus heals a demon oppressed man who is blind and mute. And the crowds ask the question, is this the son of David? And they're asking the question, is this the Messiah? And the Pharisees hear this and they respond to them by telling them that Jesus's power is the work of Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. Remember that the Holy Spirit came on Jesus to empower his mission. What these Pharisees are doing is they are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And Jesus rebukes their statements as foolishness. It doesn't make any sense that he would cast out Satan by the power of Satan. Nobody uses their power against themselves. Be like hitting myself in the face. Jesus tells them whoever is not with him is against him. Remember, there's only two paths, opposition and allegiance. And if they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, then they're opposing him. So next, Jesus gives them a strong warning. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So, what does the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit mean? I think this text has often caused a lot of fear and intimidation. I can remember as a child being afraid that I would commit this sin. I was afraid that I would accidentally say something that would keep me from getting into heaven. And I think some of that fear is rightly placed, but some of it is not. So let's dig in to understand better what this means. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to persist in unrepentant unbelief. It is to persist in unrepentant unbelief. This is what the Pharisees are doing. It's someone who has the truth of God revealed to him, and then rather than submit to God, he chooses to oppose him. It's the sin of unbelief. Jesus tells us that all other sins will be forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I told you last time I was up here that the work of the Holy Spirit is creation and recreation. It is the Spirit who makes us new, but it's also the Spirit who opens our eyes so that we can call Jesus Lord. We cannot refuse the Spirit and be forgiven. Before coming to faith, we are like that demon-possessed man, blind and mute. We are blind to our sin, unable to glorify God and enslaved to Satan. 
Jesus is here and he is offering freedom from Satan, but we must repent and believe to follow him. Repentance is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is warning these Pharisees to repent. Do not persist in unrepentant unbelief. There is a coming of judgment and all who refuse to to repent and are in opposition to God, they will not be allowed in to the kingdom of heaven. This is the one sin that will not be forgiven. On judgment day, if you have not submitted to your life to Christ, it will be too late. This is sobering and it should make us stand in a rightful fear of the Lord. However, I wanna tell you that this is not something that accidentally happens. It's not like the slip of a tongue and we don't need to fear accidentally blaspheming the Holy Spirit because this is a condition of the heart. Matthew goes on to tell us that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. This blasphemy is spoken by someone who upon hearing the truth hardens his heart. He takes a stance against God and opposes him and thereby he aligns himself with Satan. It's a blatant denial of the Lord. So let this soberness cause you to test and examine whether you are in the faith. But know this, that Jesus is in the business of bringing even the worst of sinners to faith. Do you know the story of Paul? He was a Pharisee who later in history persecutes and speaks out against the followers of Jesus. And the Lord reveals himself to Paul. And Paul repents and he believes and he is a new man. Praise God. Jesus is in the business of bringing the worst of sinners to himself and by the power of the Holy Spirit, making them new. All of Paul's sins were forgiven. Praise the Lord. He saves and he restores us. However, none of our Pharisees in Matthew are repenting. And what do these Pharisees do next? They ask for a sign. A sign? Seriously? You just had a demon-possessed man healed and now you want a sign? You think a sign's gonna convince you that Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus tells them no sign is gonna be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. If the message of Jonah was enough to make the city of Nineveh, a Gentile city, mourn and repent over their sin, then how could these Pharisees not repent when Jesus is here offering a message of, of true repentance? These Pharisees, they don't need a sign, they need to repent. Additionally, the queen of Sheba traveled many miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now Jesus is here, he is the true and better king, and he's offering wisdom far greater than Solomon. And these Pharisees are refusing to believe him. So Jesus goes on and he tells them a parable to continue his point. And it's a parable of the unclean spirit. It's an unclean spirit who has been cast out of a person, but it has not been replaced with anything greater. So these miracles that Jesus is performing, they're meant to show his authority and then call people to faith. 
It's not enough to just be wiped clean by that miracle. We must be filled with something greater. We must give our allegiance to Jesus. We must be filled with him. When Jesus' earthly mother and brothers come to see him, he tells his disciples that the allegiance that we hold to the kingdom of heaven, it gives us a new family. Now, he's not suggesting we should abandon our earthly families. And we know this because on the cross, Jesus entrusts the care of his earthly mother, Mary, to his disciple, John. But what he is saying is that if you have said yes to this question, are you the Messiah? And by faith have come to believe in Jesus, then now you are part of a greater family in the kingdom of heaven. But what is this kingdom of heaven that we're a part of? Well, Jesus is gonna go on to give us several parables in chapter 13 to better understand what it means. So we've, we've talked about a couple parables already, but what is a parable? Well, a parable is a simple story that is used to teach a spiritual truth. It's a simple story used to teach a spiritual truth. But did you ever wonder why Jesus talks in parables? Why he doesn't just speak plainly what he means? Well, he's using parables to both reveal and conceal. Jesus tells us that he's using these parables to reveal truth to his followers and conceal it from those who do not believe, like the Pharisees who are seeking to condemn him. Now you might be saying, I do believe, but I don't get these parables. And that's okay, you are not alone. I have asked this question and the disciples are asking this question as well. And that's because there's still a seeking and, involve, and finding involved in our understanding of these parables. We still need the spirit to reveal truth to us. And so as we press in to understand these parables this morning, let's ask the spirit to reveal and confirm these truths for us. All right, so in the parables, Jesus uses, uses metaphors. And these metaphors are largely applicable across various cultures and times. The things that Jesus is talking about here really haven't changed much from Jesus's day. They're simple truths, truths for anyone who believes. One thing we need to be careful of though is that not every part of the parable has meaning. And so we want to be careful not to read into it more than what is there. This can be difficult. Remember, these are simple truths. All right, so let's look at the first one, the sower. And this is the easiest to interpret because Jesus kindly gives us an interpretation for it, right? That's helpful. So the sower, he throws out seeds and we, we see that this is the message of the gospel going forth. And as the message of the gospel falls on people's ears, they respond in one of four ways. And what Jesus is doing here as he's telling them this is he's kindly giving them insight in how this message is going to be received. This way, they're not surprised when there are some who claim to have faith in Jesus, but later leave. We know in the end, there's only two paths to choose. The crowds we see now, they seem to love Jesus, but we know that later they're actually going to turn on him. And we can see this to be true for us today. We can see both in our culture at large and likely probably closer to home where loved ones uh, once declared with their mouths that they believed in Jesus, but now have left the faith. 
And I know firsthand how deeply painful this can be. But God has the power to do what we cannot. Remember Paul? So ladies, don't give up praying and speaking the gospel to those that you love. All right, so the last six parables we're gonna look at in sets of two because they contain similar truths and we're gonna come up with three truths about the kingdom of heaven from it. So the first set is the weeds and the fish. And again, we have some help here because Jesus um, interprets the weeds for us. And we see from these two parables that there is a coming judgment day. And on this day of judgment, Jesus is going to sort out those who follow him and those who do not. And there are some who seem to be following Jesus now, and based on their outer righteousness, they seem to be saved, but we know that in the end, there's only gonna be two kinds of fish. And so those in allegiance with Jesus and those opposed to him. And we know that outward righteousness, it cannot save us. All is going to be made known. Next, we have the mustard seed and leaven. The kingdom of heaven is growing. We might look around and feel like it's shrinking or losing ground, but do not be deceived. Imagine these Jewish Christians hearing Jesus' message at this time. The movement of, Je of Jesus must have seemed really small. But now remember what I said to you at the beginning that this faith that we hold, this kingdom of heaven, it spans forward and backwards in time. There have been numerous uh, attempts to stamp it out. Empires have risen and fallen, but all have failed. Take courage, sisters. The rhetoric of our day, it cannot stamp out this kingdom. We wait with hopeful expectation that one day the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. The treasure and the pearl. Sisters, the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. The trials of this life and the losses that we experience here, they are very real and painful. But press on because Christ is worth it. Philippians 3.8 tells us, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus is the pearl of greatest price. Come to him. Come to him and he will not cast you out. Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus is taking the treasures of the Old Testament and he's displaying for us how all of them, they find their fulfillment in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So sisters, don't be like those in Jesus' hometown who upon hearing the news of who he is, they were astonished, but they did not believe. If you have not come to faith, if you have not given your allegiance to Jesus as Lord, I urge you to come to him today. He is Lord and he is a just judge and a merciful savior and he stands ready to forgive, but you must repent and believe. 
If you know Christ as Lord and the Spirit has done a work in you, praise God. Let us continue to come to him. Let our faith be perfected as we entrust ourselves to the good and perfect King. We never outgrow our need to come to him, to bring our sin and our brokenness and our pain and our doubts. So let the words of our life echo what Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you are the pearl of greatest price. We thank you that we can know you, Lord, that we can know you and you are worth everything. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by this message this morning that you are over everything and in control of everything, that nothing can stamp out your kingdom. Lord, you reign and you rule. Lord, I pray that we would continue each and every day to come to you, to bring our burdens and our pain, our shame, our brokenness, and lay it at your feet. Lord, will we continue to press on in this life of faith to entrust ourselves to you, to find that you are good and faithful. And Lord, if there are those in this room who do not know you, who have tested and examined themselves and found that they are not in the kingdom, Lord, would they come to you? Lord, Holy Spirit, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open their eyes so they can see and hear and proclaim you as Lord? We know this is only the work of your spirit. We think of loved ones as well who do not know you, Lord, and we ask the same for them. Would you open their eyes, Spirit? Would we declare with our words and our life that you are Lord? We ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.